Hey, Rarecast listeners, the drug development process is no longer just for industry. Join Global Genes for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium to connect with rare disease stakeholders in the drug development space and learn what role you can play to advance treatments and cures for rare diseases. The symposium takes place in Philadelphia, June 11th and 12th. For more information, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Fibroblast growth factors are a group of cell-signaling proteins that play a critical role in growth and development. They've been implicated in achondroplasia, the most common genetic form of dwarfism, but these growth factors are also involved in a number of rare cancers. QED Therapeutics, a bridge bio company, is developing infogratinib, an experimental tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targets multiple fibroblast growth factors for both achondroplasia and certain forms of bile duct and bladder cancers. We spoke to Susan Moran. We spoke to Susan Moran, CEO of QED Therapeutics, about infogratinib, the role fibroblast growth factors play in seemingly disparate rare diseases, and the challenges of learning to work with very different types of patient communities. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. We're going to talk about QED therapeutics, FGFR-driven diseases, and your efforts to develop a therapy for certain rare cancers and achondroplasia. Let's start with FGFR, though. What is FGFR, and what does it do? Um, FGFR is, um, is a signaling pathway. There are four receptors, and they're in normal cells throughout the body. Um, and they're very important for diverse functions, um, cell differentiation, wound healing, and, and just normal functions of tissues throughout the body. If someone says tyrosine kinase inhibitor, I think of cancer. If, if you say growth factor, I, I think of achondroplasia. Is, is FGR both a, a, a tyrosine kinase and a growth factor? Well, that's a good question. So FGFR um, does signal through cells um, depending on uh, which type of cell it is and and can go down. It is a receptor tyrosine kinase um, and then does have a lot of downstream um, signaling pathways that can be important in cancer. um, And that's how it was initially identified um, with uh, next-generation sequencing of a number of solid tumors where it was noticed that um, abnormal signaling of the receptor occurred in about 7% of cancers. Um, So it was implicated then in the pathway for oncogenesis. But as far as growth, it actually is very important in normal growth of bones and um, in achondroplasia, which is an autosomal dominant disorder, um, one copy of the gene is mutated, 
and it causes uh, disorganization of, uh, of the chondrocytes in the growth plate and prevents normal growth in the growth plate. So it's important, it's important in normal growth um, of tissues and bones in particular, um, but if there's abnormal signaling, it can lead to tumors. QED is focused on developing infigratinib, a, a drug bridge bio license from Novartis to establish QED. What is infigratinib? Well, infigratinib is, um, it is, as you mentioned, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's a small molecule that's orally available, and it inhibits uh, three of the four FGFR, uh, FGF receptors, so FGF receptor 1, 2, and 3. Your lead indication is cholangiocarcinoma. What is cholangiocarcinoma, and, and how rare is it? What's the prognosis for patients with the condition today? Um, cholangiocarcinoma uh, is a cancer of the bile ducts within the liver. It is very rare. Um, and affects about uh, 20,000 people in the, Europe, in the United States and in Europe. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's often uh, discovered late and therefore has a pretty um, dire prognosis. So five-year survival uh, is extraordinarily low, and it has um, limited treatment options. Um, Surgery uh, is the best therapy, so if it can be caught early and fully respected, then patients do well, but unfortunately, only about 20% of patients are able to have the tumor fully resected. Um, and then after that, then patients can receive chemotherapy. But after chemotherapy, there, there are very limited options if the tumor should recur after that. And how is the condition treated today? The condition today is treated with surgery and then with um, chemotherapy. Gemcitabine and cisplatin um, are the most common chemotherapies, and, and the chemotherapies with the best data uh, for efficacy um, in the first-line treatment of the, of the cancer. And then after that, um, if it does recur, um, then doctors usually try a number of different chemotherapies. And currently, there are no targeted therapies for cholangiocarcinoma. Um, what's been found in the last few years, though, is if you do this next-generation sequencing, so you take tissue from the tumor and you sequence it for mutations, you'll find that about 50% of tumors will have some sort of an actionable target. Now, none of these are approved right now, but um, a number of different um, uh, investigators and biotechs are trying to develop therapies that can be these targeted therapies to target these specific mutations. And infogratinib targets a specific abnormality. Um, it's a mutation, but it's called a fusion, an FGFR2 fusion. So the FGFR, the FGF receptor 2, um, what it does is it, it, it combines uh, the DNA combines with another gene, and so it's called a fusion. Um, and we have found that in tumors that have this FGFR2 fusion, we see efficacy with um, FGFR inhibitors like infogratinib. And is the expectation that you would develop a companion diagnostic to identify patients that would respond to this treatment? Right. So uh, the good news is is that there are tests already um, that exist for testing for FGFR2 fusions. There are a number of different tests. We're working with Foundation Medicine. They already have 
an approved diagnostic test, uh, the, the, foundation, the Foundation One uh, CDX, it's called, um, that already tests for the FGFR2 fusion, but we are working with them um, so that ultimately it would need to be approved in, in uh, parallel with the drug um, for use. And, and what exactly is the drug doing in the case of patients that have that fusion? So the, the drug is uh, binding with the receptor that is hyperactivated uh, with the fusion, and then it's blocking the downstream signaling that's been turned on by that fusion. So what happens is when you have this fusion, um, instead of the receptor turning on and off like normal like it's supposed to, it stays uh, permanently active. And so this drug goes intracellularly and blocks the part of the receptor um, so that it can't, it can't continue with that downstream signaling um, that's causing the tumor to grow. How broadly applicable do you think this has the potential for being in these cancers? Um, well, in cholangiocarcinoma, we think it's a, somewhere, anywhere between 10 and 20 percent, probably about 15 percent of cholangiocarcinomas have this FGFR2 fusion. Um, so it's, it's a fairly small population, probably about 5,000 um, in the U.S. and Europe. Um, so a small population, but for the for the patients for whom the tumor has this this genetic alteration, it could be beneficial where there aren't really any therapies at, at this point um, after chemotherapy. And is there reason to believe that the same mutation exists in other cancers? Yeah, so um, we know that FGFR um, alterations occur in about 7% of cancers, and in about 2% uh, of all cancers have fusions um, of, of one of these FGF receptors. So it can be a fusion of one, two, three. Um, so a small percentage, but, um, but still probably accounts for about 35,000 patients in the U.S. and Europe with, with tumors that potentially could, be, could benefit from this treatment. Is the expectation this would be a, a monotherapy, or would you be looking to use it in combination with other existing therapies? So initially, we are testing it as a monotherapy, but we also are um, investigating potential um, combinations. Currently, we're doing that in the preclinical setting. Novartis did do a little bit of work with combinations um, before they outlicensed the molecule. So um, we are interested in looking at combinations, but for the beginning, we are um, investigating it as a monotherapy, but ultimately, it could potentially be a combination therapy. You have a partnership with the patient group Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. What has that partnership done to advance the development of the drug? It, you know, it, it has been so wonderful to have that Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. Um, we have, you know, when we first uh, started out in this in this disease space, I mean, they were very instrumental in introducing us to the right investigators, introducing us to other patients. Um, we've talked to patients about how they manage some of the adverse effects um, and gotten good tips from them on uh, different sort of supportive strategies to recommend for physicians using our drug and also have talked to them about um, what they'd want to see in um, the study, some of the challenges they have taking study medications, and then they've also helped us get the word out um, about about um, our trials and where we're looking for patients. And then very exciting, they had um, they have this Mutations Matter campaign, which I think started maybe about a year and a half ago, to really 
um, try to get the word out about how important it is to get your tumor sequenced. So where cholangiocarcinoma is one of those tumors that hasn't traditionally had very many therapies, um, it, it's not, it hasn't necessarily been first and foremost in the minds of treaters to send that tumor for next generation sequencing um, at diagnosis. And so what, what we're hoping to do is to get the word out that, that the tumors should be sequenced as soon as possible, um, you know, preferably even at that first surgery so that uh, patients can have the opportunity to potentially enroll in clinical trials or if they go ahead and get the standard of care chemotherapy, if they progress, which unfortunately is quite likely, then, then they kind of know what their next options are or could be. Where are you in development, and, and what do you know about the safety and efficacy of the drug in the indication? Yeah, so we um, we inherited a phase two study from Novartis, and we have completed enrollment in that study, and we um, are actually planning to file that uh, for um, drug approval later on this year. And then at the same time, we have launched a phase three study to take it earlier. So currently, the the, the study that we are planning to file uh, for approval is based on what's called second line. So second line means um, your tumors come back after surgery and you failed that first line chemotherapy. Um, and so we're, we're filing for approval in second line where there currently are no approved therapies or standard therapies in second line. And then we're, we've launched a phase three trial to bring it earlier into first line therapy after surgery uh, where the drug will be compared to the standard of care gemcitabine cisplatin chemotherapy. Patients will be randomized two to one, meaning they have um, a two to one chance of getting infragratinib versus standard of care. And then if they do progress on the standard of care chemotherapy, then they can cross over to receive the infragratinib. Um, so we do have a good sense of the safety profile. And actually, it's, it's largely driven by on-target effects of the FGFR1 receptor actually is in the kidney and affects um, the body's ability to excrete phosphorus. So it's a known side effect that the phosphorus levels will likely be elevated. So we um, instruct uh, the, the physicians to have their patients take what are called phosphate binders. And they all actually have gotten very used to this, and they're very good at managing it. It's, hyperphosphatemia or, or elevated phosphorus in the blood is actually not symptomatic to patients, but um, we know that over time you don't want to have a lot of extra uh, phosphorus, so they, so they take these um, what, what are called binders. Um, and then the other adverse effects are um, in the cancer setting can be skin-related, mouth and, and fingernails, um, because fibroblasts are in your, in your skin, in your nails, and in your mouth. But um, from speaking to the patients, um, all pretty manageable with, with uh, routine supportive care that the oncologists are used to using. Um, so that's in the oncology setting. In the, we'll probably be getting to the achondroplasia in a minute, but it's a much, much lower dose there, and we don't, we don't expect to see the same sort of um, safety profile in achondroplasia. Well, let's talk about achondroplasia, which you're also developing the drug for. This is the most common form of dwarfism. The chondroplasia community is interesting. While there are serious health consequences from the condition, I know there are people within that community that don't think of themselves as having a condition that needs treatment. Have you had interactions with the chondroplasia community, and what has the response been? Yes, we have. We have um, had interactions with all different. Um, 
groups with a contemplation both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. and and I think it, it it's very it is very interesting. It, um, the um, the interest in therapeutics seems to be regionally different, um, and certainly you know the. People with achondroplasia, um, they have a normal life expectancy. They have normal cognition in their their lives. Um, you know, it's not like cancer at all, right? Um, and and so they're proud of their stature and they're they're proud of their community. And that's all. Um, you know, we absolutely respect that. But we've talked to them quite a bit about what they would want um, a therapeutic to afford them. So. Um, as you mentioned, achondroplasia is the most common type of dwarfism, and it's driven by a mutation in the FGFR3 um, gene. And so in addition to short stature, which can come with some challenges with activities of daily living, um, so um, they do have shortened limbs, so personal hygiene can be um, a challenging aspect sometimes, especially for older uh, females. Um, it can be very challenging. Um, and then, you know, as they get older with driving a car, um, with reaching things. So, I mean, there, there, is, uh, there is some benefit to having increased height, um, but we really see it as something that um, we're hoping to uh, have meaningful benefit for other complications. So um, babies can be, um, can have a very, a tightened foramen magnum, which is the opening of the skull, which can pinch their spinal cord and have devastating consequences. So way down the road, we hope to be able to treat uh, very young children and potentially have an effect on that. And then we know that um, in adulthood, uh, adults with achondroplasia um, quite frequently have spinal stenosis, which can, can be quite debilitating with chronic pain. And then also in the earlier groups, they can have um, sleep apnea, they can have because their mid-face is smaller, it affects uh, it can affect their ears, and they can have um, hearing loss and some developmental delays with speech. Um, so we are, you know, we we're interested in developing this to to affect uh, all of those other um, comorbidities, and then you know, stature is sort of a would be a pleasant side effect uh, to to become taller because uh, you know it, it can be meaningful to have. Um, to, to be taller and, and, and have some benefit with the um, activities of daily living and, and make life a little bit easier. Um, but we see this as, as potentially an option for people with achondroplasia um, and, and certainly respect that some families may, um, may not be interested at all in a, in a therapy, and that's fine too, but, but uh, having spoken with some, some people living with achondroplasia who, who really do feel like they wish that they had had therapeutics. Um, we, you know, we're excited to potentially have it as an option for them. And what does the drug do in the case of achondroplasia? Well, it's, it's very similar to um, in the cancer setting, except that at a very low dose, um, because they have half of their receptors are normal, right? It's autosomal dominant, if you remember your high school biology. So one copy of the gene is normal, and one copy of the gene has a mutation. So that means that half of their receptors are normal, and then half of their receptors are abnormal. So you really don't need that much um, of, the, of the medication. And so you kind of just need to tap the brakes on this overactive, uh, half of these receptors that are overactive. So... What we've seen in animals at a very low dose, it inhibits it the same way intracellularly, right at the at the um, at the where the receptor is mutated. 
um, and turns it off, and then that allows the um, growth place and the chondrocytes and the growth place to become organized again and to go ahead and, and grow like normal and to, to, to lengthen like they should. And where are you in development at this time? So we have uh, begun enrolling what's uh, called a, a prospective observational study where we are enrolling children and we're getting baseline growth measurements on them for six months. And then uh, early next, early this year, wow, we're already in 2020. So early this year, we do expect um, to start dosing children um, in, in our phase two study. So we will be dosing in a few months. There are a number of other rare diseases that involve skeletal dysplasias. Does this provide any potential use in those conditions? There are some other skeletal dysplasias that are also driven by FGFR3 mutations. So there's a milder form of dwarfism called hypochondroplasia, which affects uh, more children, um, and, it, and it's considerably milder. They, they um, it's often not diagnosed until later. Um, and then there's some, there's some other um, skeletal dysplasias like um, a, a problem where the, um, the sutures in the cranium fuse too early. So if a skull fuse, if those, if those um, sutures fuse too early, then, then it's hard for the brain to expand and to grow. Um, and those are, the, those are the most common other kinds of skeletal dysplasias that are FGFR3 driven, um, and there's some other more rare ones um, as well. But, but we're starting off with achondroplasia, but we, we're also thinking to the future about could we potentially affect some of these other skeletal dysplasias. Is the expectation that if you're successful, you would commercialize the drug yourselves? Yes, that is the expectation. And I mentioned earlier that you're a Bridge Bio Company. How does QED leverage that relationship? Well, what's nice about that relationship is that Bridge Bio provides the financing so that we um, we can dedicate our attention to um, the science and to designing and enrolling trials, um, and not have to worry about raising money. And then, in addition, we have shared um, central resources, um, and that helps as well. Susan Moran, Chief Medical Officer for QED Therapeutics. Susan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.